If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In her most famous speech, delivered on the 9th of August, 1588, Queen Elizabeth I declared she had the heart and stomach of a king. But was that all? Could England's iconic Tudor queen actually have been a man masquerading as a woman? Welcome to Series 2 of Conspiracy from History Extra. I'm Rob Attar, and in this series we're going to be exploring some of the best-known conspiracy theories about the past. We'll be explaining how they came about and why they've endured down the decades. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from Tracy Borman, a Tudor historian who spent a number of years studying and writing about Elizabeth I, including in her new book, Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I, The Mother and Daughter Who Changed History. Together, we'll delve into a conspiracy theory that sounds far-fetched, but has remained popular for well over a century. Tracy, could we please begin with the theory itself? How do believers in this conspiracy theory think that a man came to occupy the throne as Elizabeth I? Yes, and it has to be one of the most outlandish conspiracy theories in history involving mild-time historical heroines. So, of course, it's been one that's really interested me, and I've researched it a lot for a number of my books. But the story goes that in about the year 1542, the nine-year-old Elizabeth, so she was not yet queen then, was staying in the Cotswolds in Overcourt House. It's a beautiful house dating back to the 14th century in the village of Bisley, close to Stroud, when she fell gravely ill. Now, she'd been apparently sent to the countryside because there was plague in London. But whether she died of plague or some other cause, she suddenly became ill, feverish, and she died. Now, according to this theory, her panic-stricken attendants, most notably Cat Astley, her governess, daren't tell King Henry VIII, Elizabeth's father. They knew that he was due to visit. And so in their panic, they searched for somebody else in the village who looked like Elizabeth so they could swap them. Problem was, there were no red-headed girls, nobody who looked like Elizabeth. But there was a red-headed boy who had quite apparently delicate features and could pass for Elizabeth. So they made the switch. The real Elizabeth was buried in the garden, I think, of Overcourt House. And then this imposter, this boy, masqueraded as Elizabeth and really remained as Elizabeth for the rest of his life. Now, the advantages of this theory, of course, number one, it explains why Elizabeth never married or had children, because if she'd really been this imposter, this man all along, then yeah, that would explain the Virgin Queen thing. 
pretty well. But I think you can possibly tell from my tone of voice that there are some reasons to doubt this theory as well. It actually gained currency thanks to the famous author Bram Stoker, author of Dracula, who heard about it and read it, uh, recorded by the vicar of Bisley in the 1800s, a man called Thomas Keeble, who found an old stone coffin during renovations to Overcourt. And contained within the coffin was the skeleton of a girl aged about nine, dressed in Tudor clothing. And that really seems to have been the nub of it. And what gave then Keeble this idea? I haven't been able to find any contemporary evidence that even Elizabeth was staying there at the time. But Keeble was convinced that this Tudor coffin was Elizabeth's and he wrote about it. The story was picked up by Bram Stoker because his friend and fellow novelist Henry Irving was looking for a house in the Cotswolds. And so Bram Stoker was helping him look. He'd heard about Overcourt House and that's how he picked up on it. And then in the year 1910, Stoker published his book, Famous Impostors, and the Bisley Boy legend was a big part of that book. And he puts all sorts of arguments into it. He's really given it some thought. So it's Stoker's account that really brought this conspiracy theory to prominence. So was there then no evidence of this conspiracy theory existing prior to the 19th century then? I couldn't find any, and I haven't read anybody else's accounts who has been able to unearth anything. So it's quite a leap, isn't it, from Keeble finding this coffin, which may or may not have been Tudor, to him then coming up with this theory that Elizabeth stayed there, it must have been her who died, and they switched her for a boy. It's very weird, actually. And obviously, he was a vicar with a lively imagination. It was just really then uh, seized upon, because it seemed to at the time, in the 1800s, explain an awful lot that was still very, very confusing to the Victorian people. They could not believe that Elizabeth had ruled so effectively as a woman in a man's world. And so this really helped to explain it. If she'd been a man all along, that's why she was so good at everything. She was described by her tutors at the time, so her actual tutors writing at the time, said that Elizabeth had more the understanding of a man than a woman. And I guess there were other things as well. Robert Cecil, her secretary, said that she is more than a man and sometimes less than a woman. So even in Elizabeth's lifetime, or perhaps especially, there were these kind of rumours about her sexuality, her gender. She was seen as somehow an oddity. You simply couldn't have a woman this brilliant, this gifted. She had to have something physically that made her like this. So either she had male, well, they wouldn't have understood DNA at the time, but, but some male physical characteristics that explained just why she was so able as queen. Of course, the real reason is she was just a brilliant woman, but, and we can understand that now. But they couldn't understand it in the Tudor period and they couldn't understand it, I don't think, in the 1800s when vicar Thomas Keeble cooked up this this rather outlandish theory. But, but that's interesting, isn't it? Because they, in the 1800s, 
also had a queen at the time, a queen regnant in Victoria. So there must have been something different about Elizabeth that meant that they could understand Victoria, her position as a queen, but they couldn't understand how Elizabeth reigned. What, what do you think that difference was? Absolutely. And it's such a good point, Rob, because Victoria, yes, she was another powerful female figurehead. She was sovereign, of course, but she was conventional. She'd married early in her reign. She had nine children. She herself said that she was a wife first and a queen second. So that really conformed to the Victorian ideal. Elizabeth, as an unmarried sovereign, absolutely didn't. And I think the Victorians were quite deeply uncomfortable with this, just as Elizabeth's contemporaries were. So beyond this skeleton in this graveyard, what other evidence do people who support this theory put forward for the idea that Elizabeth was actually a man? Bram Stoker really got his teeth into this. <laughs> Pardon the pun, author of Dracula, but he did because he claimed that there was a change in Elizabeth's handwriting from 1542 when he said that she died to 1543. And he's comparing a couple of letters she wrote to Catherine Parr, her last stepmother. And for a start, they, Catherine Parr didn't even become her stepmother until 1543. But anyway, let's put that to one side. He claims there's a real difference in the style of Elizabeth's handwriting and also in her comprehension. And he points to the fact there's a letter apparently from one of Elizabeth's attendants to one of her tutors saying, you know, you're going to have to go a bit more slowly in your lessons. She, she kind of has to catch up. I'm not even aware that's a, that's a valid letter, but, but Stoker talks about it quite vaguely. He also says he has a theory for exactly who the boy was who was substituted for Elizabeth. And he claims that it was an unknown son of Mary Howard and Henry Fitzroy. Now, Henry Fitzroy was Henry VIII's illegitimate son, and he was betrothed to Mary Howard, but they were both very young. Fitzroy died before they'd had any children. So there's no record of any children, but Stoker claims that there was a child. So it kind of adds an extra layer of kind of complexity onto this. But otherwise, Stoker points to and, and quotes these contemporary Elizabethan sources that say, you know, she was, she was less than a woman and more than a man and she had a male understanding. And for Stoker, that's evidence. That's not just 16th century misogyny. As you've already outlined, this is quite an outlandish conspiracy theory. But, but what do you think are the strongest arguments against it being true? For a start, there's no contemporary evidence. That, for me, is the number one reason for doubt. If this was being circulated at the time, even as a rumour, then that might potentially make it more interesting. But there's so much else. So Stoker points out that Henry VIII hardly saw his daughter, Elizabeth. So that's the other obvious hole potentially in the theory. Surely Henry would have recognised that suddenly there's somebody completely different in the place of his daughter. But Stoker says, you know, he hardly saw her. And I think that's why he weaves in Henry Fitzroy, because he said that this boy had a resemblance to Henry VIII and therefore to Elizabeth. So that's why Henry didn't notice. He would have noticed. He didn't see Elizabeth that frequently, but certainly frequently enough to have realised that she'd been swapped for an imposter. So I think that's that's hard to explain away. And also as Queen, I mean, she was never alone. 
She was always attended. She would have been dressed by her ladies and a whole army of ladies. You couldn't keep a secret like this. You just couldn't. Even small secrets were found out in the Tudor court. And Elizabeth had this veritable army of attendants. One of them would have said something if they knew that actually beneath these glorious costumes lay the body of a man. It absolutely would have got out. And by contrast, what we have actually are quite detailed records of, for example, Elizabeth's menstrual cycle, because ambassadors were inquiring into this. So we know that she was functioning as a woman because that was valid information to inquire about for ambassadors who were treating for her hand in marriage. They had to know that she was fertile and she was examined by doctors. You know, this was too big a secret to get away with. There would have had to have been this, this kind of iron-like ring of those in the know surrounding Elizabeth. And there just wasn't. There were just too many people involved in serving her and seeing her divested of her clothes and washing those clothes and the sheets and everything else that would have really given the game away. It's a theory that I think takes to the extremes the misogyny that Elizabeth had to deal with. This idea that how on earth did she do it? She's just a woman, yet she is mistress of a kingdom and of an empire, as one of her contemporaries saw it. And this provided the perfect explanation, because otherwise it was deeply uncomfortable for her male contemporaries to have to explain that here was a highly competent woman outfoxing them all. Is this a theory that you still encounter today? You're, you're someone who works on Elizabeth I. Do people bring this to you? Do people talk to you about it? Regularly. There are a couple of questions that I get asked more than any other when I'm giving talks, for example. Top of the list is, was Elizabeth really a virgin queen? That's top. Bisley boy, I think, probably comes second. <laughs> people love it because they they think this this explains it. And what a neat explanation it would be. So people absolutely are still invested in this. But I would say almost equal second or perhaps third on the list of most asked questions is, is it true that Elizabeth had Thomas Seymour's child? So for every rumour that there was some physical impediment for Elizabeth to, to marry and have sex, such as that she's a man, there's one that says she had a lover and that she had an illegitimate child, several illegitimate children, according to some rumours. So where does the truth lie between these two extremes? I think they all boil down to the same point, you know, that she had to be more than just a woman alone ruling a country. She had to have either a string of male lovers helping and guiding her, or she had to be a man. But it's fascinating, isn't it, that all of the questions I'm asked more than any other revolve around Elizabeth's gender and sexuality. And, and that really is the genesis of this conspiracy theory. So this must point to much more recent misogyny than just the Tudor age, because this conspiracy theory was born in the Victorian era. It's still believed today. So we're, we're talking about modern day misogyny as well here, aren't we? We absolutely are. So yes, Thomas Keeble, so he was vicar of Bisley from the 1820s all the way through to the 1870s. So that he kind of spanned a few different reigns, but mostly Victoria's reign. And then 
Bram Stoker, that was into the, well, it's the crossover between the reign of Edward VII and then uh, George V. So we're talking early 20th century. And the fact it's still being spouted, repeated. When I was preparing for this podcast today, I thought I'm just going to Google it and see if people are still talking about this. Yes, they are, Rob, I can say. <laughs> there are lots of blogs about this. People are still fascinated today. And the interesting thing is, I think it's being kind of debated and posted about more by women than men, <laughs> actually. So it's misogynistic, but I think people do just love a good conspiracy theory. They love to have come up with this reason that explains apparently so much about Elizabeth. I mean, I do tend to put more credence to theories that, you know, Elizabeth may have had some kind of physical characteristic that gave her more energy, made her more kind of stridently masculine, if you like. I'm really cautious about this, but I think it carries a bit more weight. There's a syndrome called androgen insensitivity syndrome. And people with this condition are born with male XY chromosomes, but develop outwardly as female. And women with this condition apparently find sexual intercourse either difficult or impossible. Wallace Simpson apparently suffered from it. Uh, they tend to be very slim, actually quite thin, both Elizabeth and, and Wallace were, and have a dominance of testosterone in their bodies. They tend to be unusually tall, very, very energetic, sort of restless energy. You know, if I'm going to be pushed along the theory of you know, was there something behind this? Was Elizabeth in some way male? Did she have male characteristics? That holds a bit more weight, potentially. But really, from what I've read and researched of Elizabeth, I think at heart, she was just an incredibly able woman. And that's what people even today struggle with. So this conspiracy theory, as we've said, is quite a strange one. Some people might find it quite amusing. But do you think there's a pernicious aspect to it too? Is it dangerous for these conspiracy theories to exist and for people to not take a woman seriously at that time? I think it is dangerous, actually, because as well as saying more about the society that spawns these ideas, it takes the spotlight away from what we should be looking at, which are Elizabeth's achievements, also her failures. I'm not just going to be a complete Elizabeth champion here today. It wasn't necessarily a, just a dazzling golden age, her reign, but it, it's a distraction from what we ought to be studying and finding out more about, you know, whether it's her, her foreign policy or her court life, her contribution to English culture, all of these really fascinating subjects. I'm not saying they've been neglected, but it's unhelpful when there is just this obsession with was she a virgin queen? Was she a man? Did she have secret love children? That's not really the questions we should be answering. So it is, it's very dangerous, I think. It's, it's misleading. And we ought to be researching and celebrating Elizabeth for who she actually was. And I, you know, I have to say, Rob, I've been guilty of it too, because it's interesting, isn't it? Everybody wants to know. I think even today with modern royals, you know, what goes on behind closed doors? What what are the relationships really like? We kind of want the gossip, don't we? And I guess it was just the same in the reign of Elizabeth. 
And out of interest, are there any similar theories about Mary? Because she was quite a powerful queen, quite a dominant figure who, again, didn't have any children, or, or is it only limited to Elizabeth? It's interesting, isn't it? Because there are no really similar theories, because Mary was conventional. She was another Victoria. She married very early in her reign. She made it clear that that was what she wanted and that, you know, she was fixated with having an heir. There was no question she was going to to rule alone. But in that case, because of course, we know that Mary did have fertility problems and she suffered what may have been either phantom pregnancies or actually something like ovarian cancer. It would have produced similar symptoms to the ones that Mary experienced when she thought she was pregnant. But historians tend to look at Mary's physical history in a more, I guess, rational, impartial light. So they point to the fact that Mary did have problems, stomach problems, menstrual problems growing up. And they look at those more, as I say, rationally and more in isolation and and don't try to speculate that, you know, what was there something else, you know, behind it? Was there something more sinister? And actually, we know as well that Elizabeth had similar problems. You know, I don't know if it's perhaps something they both inherited from Henry. There are all sorts of theories. But Mary hasn't been subject to the same amount of rumour because she did the conventional, the expected thing of, of getting married and of at least trying to have a child, even though, sadly, that didn't happen for her. Were there any other queens or Tudor royals for whom there was this same level of attention about their physical bodies and same amount of speculation about them? There certainly were, because the primary function of a queen, particularly a queen consort, not just a queen regnant like Elizabeth and her sister Mary, was to fill that royal nursery, was to produce heirs to secure the dynasty. And that's not just unique to the Tudor period, of course. And so I would actually point in particular to Elizabeth's mother, Anne Boleyn, who, of course, we know an awful lot about her fertility problems because they would cost her her life, ultimately. She wasn't an adulteress, I'm pretty sure. She wasn't a traitor, but she didn't famously give Henry VIII the son that he so desired. So ultimately, this brilliant woman, and and I think Anne Boleyn absolutely was that, was judged not by her mind or her achievements, her abilities, but by her body. And I think that's what it boils down to with both Queen's consort and Queen's regnant. If they didn't fulfil the basic female functions, then people almost couldn't get past that. They couldn't really truly appreciate anything else they did. And certainly Henry VIII couldn't appreciate that. So it's interesting, isn't it, that parallel between mother and daughter. Their fates were very different in one respect, but in another, they were both ultimately judged by their bodies. That was Tracy Borman. You can find out more about her and her many books at tracyborman.co.uk. And do let us know what you think about this episode via our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.